So this is a talk um, that's inspired by a book by Ronald Dworkin that came out in 1993, and the book's called Life's Dominion. Now, I'm assuming that not many people know of this book. Am I correct? Yeah, but you've probably heard of Ronald Dworkin because he's a bit of big cheese in the legal world. Um, and in 1993, he came up with a, a really interesting theory, and it's, a, it's an attempt to reframe the abortion debate. Now, it's also an attempt to reframe the euthanasia debate, but the reframing of the euthanasia debate just falls out of the reframing of the... Um, uh, the abortion debate, so I'm not going to bother about that. Um, now, what I what I want to do is I want to tell you about his theory. So, mostly it'll just be description. Then I'll tell you where I think it goes wrong, and then I'll tell you why I think there's something right about it. So we're looking for the kernel of truth, as it were. Okay. So, um, Dworkin starts by saying that look in the the sort of public debate about abortion. It's mostly framed as pro-life versus pro-choice. So this is his take on it. And um, the pro-life camp say the fetus has a right to life. Um, the pro-choice people don't really want to talk about the right to life, but at the end of the day, they have to deny that the fetus has a right to life. So he thinks the debate on the face of it turns on this issue, whether the fetus has a right to life or not. Okay? And if it doesn't have a right to life, then, of course, it's uh, straightforwardly obvious that you can be pro-choice. Now, Dworkin says, that's just the sound and fury. That's just the rhetoric. You have to look behind that to understand what the debate is really about. And what he says, and this might sound very surprising, is what it's really about is competing views about what makes life sacred. What is the sanctity of life? Okay, and I didn't believe it either when I, when I first saw this, so I'm going to sort of step through how he comes to this view. Okay, and so that's just a descriptive bit of his project. So he's, he's trying to describe the abortion debate. Then he comes up with a normative argument that falls out of this. He says, look, there's no correct view about what makes life sacred. People just have competing views and there's no way to... Um, pick a right one. Um, so a free society should not seek to impose any one view on its people. Okay? So in a free society, you should in effect be free to have an abortion if you want to. So in effect, it's an argument for the legality of abortion, but it's a rather circuitous argument. Okay. Now, Dawkins starts this attempted reframe by noting that opponents of abortion use two very different forms of language when they're talking about abortion. So the first thing is you'll often hear opponents of abortion saying, abortion is murder, or it's homicide. And the second thing is they'll say, abortion violates the sanctity of life. Now, Dworkin thinks that these are, these are just two different objections. And he thinks that the, the murder objection isn't in itself that interesting. He calls this a derivative objection, because in order to establish it, you need to establish independently that the fetus has interests and bears rights. It has, you have to tell a story about what the fetus is such that it can have the sort of things that makes it um, murderable. Okay. The second thing, the story about the sanctity of life, he calls this a detached objection. And he thinks it's established 
by appeal to the intrinsic value of life. Okay, so if life has this intrinsic value, um, then um, this this is uh, this is a sort of claim that stands on its own. It doesn't need. It's not derived from some deeper source. Okay, so we'll see how that sort of works out. Now, when you look at the public debate about abortion, according to Dworkin, you note a couple of interesting things. Um, and so I'm not talking about the academic debate, I'm talking about the, uh, just the public debate. And again, this is a very American sort of focused thing. The first thing is that people who are opponents of abortion don't actually believe that um, <coughs> abortion is as morally significant as murder. Okay? Uh, there's good survey evidence on this. There's also anecdotal evidence. Uh, according to Dworkin, uh, George Bush, the president at the time he wrote the book, um, he didn't think he considered, even though he's, um, he's pro-life, he, uh, he, he claimed that he would support his granddaughter if she wanted to have an abortion. Now, if you think about it, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If you think that the fetus is alive, that's another relative of his. So he's, he'd be, in effect, saying, I support one relative of mine to kill another relative. And surely he doesn't mean that. Okay? Um, so, um, also the, um, so the sort of the abortion clinic bombing group, the Army of God, they get very frustrated with mainstream pro-life people um, because they don't think they're serious. So their slogan is, if you think abortion is murder, act like it's murder. Okay? And they get very frustrated that mainstream pro-life people don't, in fact, do this. Okay. Now, Dworkin also thinks that the um, pro-choice camp don't dismiss uh, the fetus as having no moral significance either. If you actually ask people or you ask women who are contemplating having an abortion how they go through the decision-making procedure, according to Dworkin, they take it very seriously. They always see it as a grave moral decision. Okay, to be carefully weighed. They don't think um, this just doesn't matter. Okay, that's just not how it plays out. Okay, so what he thinks is the um, the, the sound and fury of the uh, the sort of the public face of the debate, pro-life versus pro-choice, is hiding something about what's really going on with this debate. Okay, and here's what he thinks it's hiding. It's hiding this story about two different accounts of the sanctity of life. So, according to Dworkin, nearly all of us um, share the idea that life is sacred. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean everyone. Uh, he's not sort of committed to say, oh, yeah, Peter Singer thinks this, and uh, everyone thinks this, but nearly all of us, according to him, think that life is sacred, and that means it has intrinsic value. And he thinks there are two sources of intrinsic value so one source is natural or divine investment in life. So a value that is acquired when someone is born, okay? And if you're religious, you can think of that as sort of a gift from God. And if not, according to Dworkin, you think of it as uh, something that falls out of evolutionary processes. And the second thing is that is creative investment in life. So this is... Uh, it's so sort of it's kind of like uh, Karl Marx's theory of labour. You invest labour in uh, life, and that 
produces value to it. So our personality, training, capacity, interests, ambitions, and emotions um, uh, contribute to intrinsic value. And look, he says, look, we can just disagree about the relative importance of natural and creative investment. If you think that natural or divine investment is really important, then you're going to be opposed to abortion because that is destroying the natural divine investment in life. However, if you think that creative investment is, is the most important thing, then it's quite, possible, it's quite plausible that you'll be pro-abortion under certain circumstances because you'll think you know, a woman thinking about whether to have an abortion or not will want to consider how is bringing up a child going to affect my life plans from here on and also going to think, um, you know, what kind of life can I create for this child such that this child can uh, enjoy creative investment in life? And the starting point of the child is going to make a big difference, surely. So you can see how someone might think, um, well, just not enough creative investment under these circumstances, so I'm going, to be, uh, I'm going to be justified in having an abortion under this set of circumstances, but not under another set of circumstances. <clears throat> okay? And then, so that's all descriptive. And then the, uh, the normative argument, um, well, there's just no right way to uh, determine this. So um, we've got to be tolerant in a free society. So we should allow people to choose to have abortions if they want to. Okay, so that is Dworkin's reframe of the abortion debate. Okay, so a completely different way to think about it. Um, now, his view got a lot of traction, it got a lot of attention, and uh, there's there were big reviews by James Rachels and Francis Cam, all kinds of legal uh, people, um, but very few people agreed with him. Now, there are lots of criticisms. I'm just going to pick out some criticisms that will matter for me. Okay, so this is not a sort of uh, comprehensive list of all the criticisms. Now, one thing that's kind of weird about this is that, on his view, sacredness comes in degrees. So if life is sacred uh, and you creatively invest, then um, that um, you, uh, you put more investment in, it becomes more sacred. And that just doesn't seem to be how we talk about the sacred. So um, um, it's ordinarily, if you think that life is sacred, um, people talk about this, they think that lives are all equally sacred. I don't think that some are more sacred because you've uh, invested more. Um, <clears throat> Dawkins runs an analogy to uh, great works of art. He thinks that sanctity is not just a sort of uh, discussion about life. Um, so it comes up in all kinds of contexts. Um, and um, he talks about um, uh, the sacredness of art coming in degree, so you can think that, uh, yeah, the, uh, the Mona Lisa, it's somehow more sacred than um, uh, a little sketch I could draw on the board here. Um, there you go, that's, uh, that's maybe got a little bit of sacredness, but the Mona Lisa's got a lot. Um, but the story still doesn't seem quite right, because on his view, presumably what's going on with art is uh, creative investment. So he's going to say, well, Steve, your creative investment is minimal, so you're not much sacredness there. Whereas the Mona Lisa, a lot of creative investment, so a lot of sacredness. But look, if we found out 
um, that the Mona Lisa, we thought it took 1,000 hours to create, but it actually took 2,000, we wouldn't think it's twice as sacred. That just seems wrong. So the creative investment story sounds very dodgy. It also doesn't seem to gel with ordinary stories about the creation of sanctity that fall out of religion. So in mainstream Judeo-Christian religions, things are sacred because God decrees they're sacred. So uh, Jeff McMahon's got a nice line on this, a bit of a withering put down. He says, look, um, so mainstream Christian view, uh, humans are sacred and rocks are not because God says humans are sacred and rocks are not. Okay, and if God had wanted to go the other way, then rocks would be sacred and humans were not. It comes down to a divine decision rather than divine investment. Okay, it's not like God spent lots of extra time creating humans. Um, also, the story about natural investment um, somehow falling out of evolution seems to be based on just a misunderstanding of the theory of evolution. Nature doesn't really invest in uh, things. Evolution is supposed to be just a set of blind processes. So um, the assumption, again, this is just descriptive of how people acquire the view that life is sacred, seems to assume that all of the non-religious who acquire this acquire it by misunderstanding the theory of evolution, which seems deeply uncharitable. Okay? Um, so, look, upshot of this is, the, is his analysis of sacred value as a form of intrinsic value just looks wrong. Now, I think what's gone wrong is um, the armchair approach. So, uh, Dawkins has sat down and tried to think really hard about um, what, uh, what sanctity is, and this is what he's come up with, and it's not a bad effort, but what he could have done is go and look at the social scientific literature on sanctification. Uh, and that would have made his life a lot easier. So what I'm going to do is what I suggest that Dworkin should have done, um, and it's going, to, it's going to come up with a fairly different story. Okay? So um, this is a sort of a bit of a hot topic these days in psychology uh, and various other areas. But... Um, Discussion of the sacred standardly all seems to come back to Durkheim. Durkheim is the big pusher of the concept. Um, and in his sort of theory about religion, uh, he, um, he defended the view that all religious thought is organised around this cardinal distinction between the sacred and the profane. Okay? Profane meaning just non-sacred. Okay? Um, and what he thought is that, look, Pretty much anything can be sacred. People can be sacred, places can be sacred, objects can be sacred, practices, values, they can all be sacred. What makes them sacred is the way they're treated. So um, the religious are going to set up and respect rules uh, regulating, sorry, governing regulating is a bit redundant, regulating contact with the sacred. Okay. They kind of, according to Durkheim, the reason for this is um, because of the, what he calls the contagiousness of the sacred. So um, he thinks that really what's going on is that people think, realise that the sacred is a sort of a site in which supernatural powers infect the world and these things are contagious and you've got to keep them under control. So, and sort of the way people think about sanctity 
does capture some of this. So think of the Shroud of Turin. What makes it sacred is that people who um, believe it is sacred believe that the body of Jesus was wrapped in it, and this gives it sacred powers. Okay? So merely by coming in contact with something sacred, the Shroud becomes sacred. Okay? So there's this worry about... Um, the sacred being something that's uh, difficult to control and uh, you know can cause a lot of trouble, so we have to keep it under wraps, as it were. So all these rules are set up regulating contact with the sacred. So one thing that's striking about a church is that there will be a lot of rules about how you behave, who can do what in a church. And what's important for respecting religion is to obey the rules. Okay, now Durkheim says the following. And this is key to his, um, his uh, anthropology. He says, look, when members of communities conduct ritual focused on the sacred, okay, when they share sacred values and conduct rituals around those, they experience collective effervescence. So it's this, uh, it's this emotion bringing people together and this binds communities together. So... You think that a rock or an idol or whatever it is, or a person or a set of values is sacred. You perform a ritual around that, and then you feel closer to the people who share that value. Okay? And he thinks that's the key to religion, and it's also what makes religion a good thing, that it um, binds people together to form communities. Okay, now... Durkheim is just cited as a major influence in contemporary accounts in sociology, anthropology, and psychology of religion. So John Haidt, big name these days in uh, social psychology and moral psychology, describes his account of religion as being straight out of Durkheim. Um, and for the most part, uh, psychologists who um, have tried to capture what the sacred is have come up with something that's pretty much um, straight out of Durkheim. So this guy, Philip Teplock, he's a bit of a big name in the area. According to him, sacred values are those values that a moral community treats as possessing transcendental significance that precludes comparisons, trade-off, or any mingling with secular values. So the idea is there are rules regarding the sacred, and in order to um, treat something as sacred, to be religious, uh, according to these guys, you have to obey the rules. They're not, they're not compromisable. Okay? No trade-offs. Okay. Um, so the big thing about sacred values is it's extremely difficult to get people to compromise over them. So for a long time, psychologists were sceptical about claims of sacred values. And they thought when people claim to have sacred values, they don't really mean it. Of course, they're willing to compromise. Um, but there's um, quite good evidence that when people hold sacred values, they're in fact not willing to compromise. So one sort of evidence is that the suggestion that you will compromise on something you treat as sacred is liable to provoke, provoke outrage, as um, it suggests insincerity that um, if, I, if I say something is sacred to me and you say, well, you know, what if I pay you to uh, insult it or something, that, uh, to, to disrespect it, that will provoke outrage in me. The suggestion that I could be paid off um, is going to uh, 
uh, lead to trouble. And actual violations of sacred values will provoke outrage as well. And so these violations of sacred values, it's not just that I expect people who um, share my sacred values to not violate them. I expect everyone not to violate them. So when uh, Muslims say it's, uh, it's forbidden to attempt to depict God, um, they mean everyone. They don't just mean Muslims. They'll treat uh, any attempt to depict God as a violation of sacred values. Um, so <coughs> violations of sacred values provoke outrage and liable to lead to violent responses. There's a great study by a group led by a guy called Jeremy Ginges on this. So what he did was he, he took a bunch of uh, different um, groups of Palestinians and Israelis and he asked them to contemplate various sorts of peace deals um, that, which might happen between Israel and Palestine. So one group, um, which was a group of Palestinian students, they were invited to consider a deal whereby they would gain a state control over the Gaza Strip and um, I think uh, uh, the Sinai. Um, but in return, they'd have to relinquish uh, their claims on Jerusalem. Now, um, then he, he and there, you know, there's various people who supported it and various people who didn't. Now, then he said, let's contemplate a sweetened deal. And in the sweetened deal, um, Israel would um, grant these territories in return for the Palestinians giving up their claims over Jerusalem and Israel would also give every Palestinian th family a thousand dollars, thousand US dollars each year for 10 years. Now, for the Palestinians who um, thought that there were no sacred values at stake, who didn't treat control over Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Al-Quds in uh, Arabic, is uh, a sacred city in Islam. Um, for the people who um, uh, didn't treat this as sacred values, they preferred the sweetened deal. Obviously, because it's a better deal. You know, not only do you get all the territory, you get $1,000 for each family um, for 10 years. But to the people who treated um, control over Jerusalem as a sacred value, uh, this backfired. So to them, the thought that uh, they might be bribed, as it were, to give up control over a sacred site was taken as a great insult. So there was dramatically less support for the deal amongst those Palestinians who regarded control of Jerusalem as sacred. Okay, so it's difficult but not impossible to negotiate with people who uh, hold, sincerely hold sacred values. So one way in which you can negotiate is over how to interpret sacred values. So this is kind of an interesting case. I take it people remember the Taliban blowing up the Bamiyan statues in 2001. Because the Bamiyan statues were these magnificent um, Buddhist statues, the giant statues of the Buddha, which the Taliban blew up. Now, turns out that there was a change of heart in the Taliban. So Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban, is by Taliban standards a moderate. And in 1999, he defended the Bamiyan statues. And he said, look, these statues, um, so, so the issue is depicting God is forbidden in Islam. And, and, and he said, 
These are not depictions of God because there are no Buddhists living in Afghanistan these days to worship them. Okay? Now, you might think that's a rather dodgy interpretation, but the point is he was able to interpret it, interpret this, uh, this uh, rule in such a way as to allow the statues to survive. Um, later on, there was a bit of a power struggle. The, um, the less moderate elements took over, and so the Taliban took a more straightforward interpretation. Yes, they are violations of sacred values because they're depictions of God, whether anyone's worshipping them or not. So blow them up. So there's this scope for different interpretations. The second thing is, often the scope of the sacred is underspecified uh, or the subject of disagreement. So uh, religious Zionists, uh, hardcore religious Zionists, will often say that the land of Israel must be under Israeli control. It was given um, by God to the Jewish people. But there's considerable disagreement about the boundaries of the land of Israel. Um, uh, similarly, um, in Islam, there's supposed to be a sacred area around the cities of Mecca and Medina that is forbidden to non-Muslims. Um, so if you want to see something interesting that falls out of this, there's a thing called the Christian Bypass in, uh, in Mecca, which uh, Christians sort of get off the road so they don't get into the, uh, into the sacred area. Um, there's very different views about the scope of the sacred area. So in some people it's, think it's just a sort of minimal area. These, these two cities are only sort of 300 k's apart. Other people think this is very large. Some people think it's the whole of Saudi Arabia. Osama bin Laden thought it's Saudi Arabia plus Yemen plus Kuwait. It's, it's, it's a huge area. Okay? So there's scope for disagreement about the sacred. Oftentimes the boundary of the sacred is um, underspecified. How do things become sacred? Well, um, as we saw from Durkheim, sacralization is encouraged by the conduct of rituals. Conduct rituals about things that you uh, treat as sacred and that will reinforce the sense of the sacred. The second thing is the use of sacred rhetorics. There's a nice study of this about um, Iran's ability to create the sense in its population that they have a sacred, they have a, a sacred right which cannot be violated to nuclear energy. Now, this has only been acquired over about a decade, so it's uh, it's come up very rapidly. But Iranians, uh, not all of them obviously, but many of them, will treat this very seriously. And what has happened is they've been exposed to lots of sacred rhetoric, and the sacred rhetoric ties the right to uh, nuclear energy to Iran's national destiny. Um, and they talk about it as something they'll never violate. Um, you might be aware that there's a sort of a treaty about uh, nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons that uh, is currently enforced, but Donald Trump keeps trying to undermine, between um, Iran and six world powers. If you look at the detail of this treaty, it actually re it upholds the sacred right of Iran to nuclear energy, just not nuclear weapons. Okay, so they think this confirms what they've got. They, they have not violated their sacred rights. Um, the other thing is identification. If you start to identify with a value or something, you see it as part of you, then that makes it much easier to not negotiate, to treat, and that makes it easier to treat something as sacred. So the Iranians, by tying nuclear energy to their sort of national history of um, resisting oppression, um, a tie it to their sense of identity. OK, 
Okay, that's just what it is to be a, an Iranian is to uh, protect yourself from uh, foreign invaders. Um, so here's a way Sir Patrick Henry, the um, famous American revolutionist, said, "Give me liberty or give me death." A way of understanding this is he identifies the value of liberty with himself, and um, were he to uh, have liberty taken away from himself, he would no longer be Patrick Henry. So you might as well kill him. Okay? So it would if if you enslaved him or you killed him, it wouldn't really matter. Either way, he wouldn't be Patrick Henry. Okay? So can't compromise on that value because he identifies with it. Alright. What about the sanctity of life? Should we treat life as the same way we do other sacred values? Well, I think we should. As I said, um, the uh, sacred, as we've seen, is a highly malleable concept. Everyone seems to agree on this. Lots of different things can be sacred. And life looks like a very good candidate for sacralization. The first thing is we conduct a lot of rituals around life. So christenings, funerals, uh, all kinds of rituals <coughs> are pa passing through stages of life, 21st birthday parties and so forth. They all seem to be about life, okay? So we ritualise life a lot. Second thing is there's, um, um, there's certainly a lot of rhetoric, sacred-looking rhetoric about life. Life is a miracle. Um, you know, life cannot be taken away from me. Um, you know, we, we will never trade life, our lives for you know, no amount of money, so, so on and so on. Lots of people give you a lot of rhetoric about life. And the third thing is, well, it's really easier to identify with your life because you will be dead if you, uh, if you lack life. So absent a theory of uh, life after death that makes you sort of exactly the same um, in death, uh, this looks like a very easy thing to do. So, so all the things we've seen, all the moves that people seem to make to make something sacred to them seem to apply to life itself. Okay, so looks like Dworkin was right about this much. Uh, he's right to treat the sanctity of life um, in the same way as we treat sacred values. Okay, <clears throat> now Dworkin's also right about this, I think. He's right that the Believing in the sanctity of life is compatible with being pro-abortion. But that is because it's disputed what the, concept, what the boundaries of sacred life are. Okay? So you can have various points at which you believe, depending on whatever your theory is, about when sanctity kicks in. So it can kick in at conception, that's a common view. It can kick in at birth. You could just think, you know, your understanding of how life is sacred is it doesn't become sacred until birth. Um, it, uh, another possibility is it kicks in at insolment. So life is not sacred until a soul is implanted in the body. You know, various different stories and different religious traditions about when that happens. Um, so usually some point between conception and birth. Um, so, and you could also just have a vague theory. You could be uncommitted. Um, but... From what we understand about how sacred values work, once you commit to a particular view, then you're not going to be able to compromise. Okay? So the scope for compromise 
between people who just think that life is sacred but don't have a specified view about when it becomes sacred. So just like with, say, the land of Israel, if you don't um, have a specified view about what its boundaries are, there could be compromises. If you just think that life is sacred and you're not, you're not sort of stuck on a particular view, then you're fine. Once you've got a particular view, it becomes a lot harder to compromise. Um, so, kind of I, said, I already said that first point. So Scott Atron's got this um, proposal for compromise. So this, this is guys take sacred values very seriously. And he points out that uh, there's a big problem in the Middle East. You've got two religious groups who both think that the same city is sacred to them. So on the face of it, if you understand sacred values as values you can't compromise, it looks like there can be no compromise over Jerusalem al-Quds. Um, but he thinks, hang on a minute, as long as it's not specified what the boundaries of these places are, you can compromise. If um, uh, you know, religious Jews were willing to say that uh, for them Jerusalem means West Jerusalem and uh, devout Muslims were willing to say that Al-Quds means East Jerusalem, then they can both control the relevant places. Okay? So, so while things are vague about what the boundaries of the sacred, uh, the sacred city are, there is scope for uh, compromise. Once you become more specific, then it's going to be harder to compromise. So, and I mean, this is going to depend a bit on um, what, what sort of natural boundaries fall out of things. So if, think about a sacred island, a holy island. Uh, there's sort of natural boundaries to that, so that's going to make it hard to compromise. But a city, well, you know, um, there's just it's just not clear what the boundaries of a city are. Now, the problem we have, and this is, I think, this is why Dworkin's um, um, normative argument is not going to work about abortion in the abortion debate these days, is that most contemporary Christian opponents of abortion have a specific view. So their specific view is that life becomes sacred at conception. Okay? Now, if you have that specific view, and what we understand about sacred values, you're not going to compromise. Okay? Uh, if you just held the view that life was sacred in a sort of generic way, uh, and you didn't specify when that started, then there will be scope for compromise. But unfortunately, at the moment, uh, that doesn't seem to be available. It has been available at different times. There was sort of, um, um, if you read sort of 19th century Catholic dialogue on this sort of stuff, they were much more open-minded about uh, when life becomes sacred. Um, so insolment doctrines seem to be taken more seriously and there's sort of debates about when this might occur. Okay? Um, so it looks like... Um, it looks like what Dworkin's hope that for his sort of liberal argument that people are going to say, ah, these other people have different views about uh, sacred values. There's no right story to be had, so I'm going to tolerate those different views. Um, doesn't seem to be uh, an argument that uh, works if you understand how sacred values work. So the key point about sacred values is that you're not going to compromise on them. 
the um, so you if you think that um, if you think that life becomes sacred at conception, you are simply not going to be liable to agree to um, let someone else say, oh, well, I think life becomes sacred at birth, therefore I'm going to have an abortion. You won't do that, okay? Because that is, that is to not treat your own value uh, that something is sacred seriously. So you'll take that as an insult, okay? Um, so that's why I think Dworkin's argument um, doesn't succeed, but it doesn't succeed now. Some version of it could succeed under some other circumstances in other places where there was less specification about how life becomes sacred. Um, we've got a little bit of time, I think, so let me just um, run through one other possibility that um, I'm, I'm sort of a bit under, undecided about this. But there seems to be another possible way, if you want to try and forge compromises over abortion, of going, and that is desanctification. So, if you were to persuade people not to treat life as sacred, then, of course, there'd be room for all kinds of compromises. Okay? So, what's holding people back is that they have become convinced that life is sacred. Take the sacredness out, and um, compromise becomes very easy. Well, maybe peace in the Middle East would become very easy as well if you took the sacred values out of the picture. So, it's not quite clear how desanctification could occur. But um, the most obvious thing is, if you don't do the sorts of things that create sanctity, you're going to lead things to be desanctified. So don't create, don't honour rituals around life. Um, don't use sacred rhetoric. Don't talk about the miracle of birth or anything like that. Um, don't have christenings. Don't have funerals. Um, and um, you know, don't identify with your life. If you did those sort of things, if you could persuade enough people to do those sort of things, then they might start to desanctify life. Now, I think that is not terribly realistic, and for a sort of reason that Dworkin has said, we live in a liberal society, so you'd have to try and prevent people from um, having, the, having the sort of rituals that sanctify life. Um, and using the sort of rhetoric that sanctifies life, and we can't do that in a, in a liberal society while it's still remaining a liberal society. So the upshot of all this is I think Dworkin's really interesting project, I think there's something right about it. I think that um, he's right that talk about the sanctity of life is distinct from um, other aspects of the abortion debate and mutatis mutandis for the euthanasia debate. But um, he's wrong to think that the entire abortion debate is about, is about sanctity. Um, look, I mean, I mean, one thing is I think he's, he's straightforwardly wrong about um, sanctity being the same as intrinsic value. So if you think that people also believe that life has intrinsic value, then that's a whole other dimension of the abortion debate. Okay? Um, so he's wrong to think that the whole debate is about uh, sanctity, but it is one aspect of the debate, and understanding this sheds light, I think, on why the abortion debate is so intractable. Okay, so if you understand that and you understand how sacred values can or cannot um, be compromised over, 
then I think it helps to understand, and this is perhaps a depressing note, but why we won't resolve the abortion debate anytime soon. Thank you.